Hi, welcome to the Queer Q. I'm Lena. And I'm Nick. And in today's episode, we are here with filmmaker Chase Joint, known for his shorts like Madness, and his new feature-length documentary, No Ordinary Man, that looks at the untold history of Billy Tipton. Thank you so much for being with us today, Chase. I'm so happy to be here. So um, just starting off, diving right into it, um, you know, we want to ask some very background-oriented questions. You know, what inspired you to get into filmmaking? You know, do you have any stories about any of, like, the cultural touchstones? Yeah, absolutely. So I went to theater school at UCLA and became quickly absorbed in activist communities who were organizing around sexual and gender-based violence. And I really started making movies in part in response to what I felt like was a lack of moving image representation about queer and trans subjects that made sense to me. But I think the better answer to your question is to tell a very short but excited story. And I tell this story often because it is so foundational to my understanding uh, uh, and inspiration about queer and transcultural production. And that day I was in a class and I wasn't looking at the syllabus and a guest speaker walked into the front of the room and it was Kate Borenstein. And Kate immediately launched into a performance in what I now recognize was probably related to gender outlaw, but at that time wasn't making those connections. And Kate drops the register of her voice and looks out into the room and says, did that do anything to help you figure me out? And in my mind, I was like, yes, yes, it did. But of course, what Kate was doing was drawing our attention to all of the transphobic expectations that we put on trans people to help us make sense of them and transness and culture. But in that moment, Kate was really the first trans person who I had ever knowingly encountered. And it really revolutionized and transformed my understanding about what art can do related to activist communities and, and social change. And so kind of like looking then at your filmography and your experience, um, how has that shaped in the stories that you want to tell um, and that you approach, for instance, like resurrectomy and genderized and even framing Agnes? Like there's so much um, on your filmography that I think is so phenomenal. And I kind of want to pick your brain as a filmmaker of like, uh, what is your approach in choosing these topics and the way you um, do them? Like with resurrectomy, it was kind of like a split screen. And like, it was, it was amazing how you were going from one narrative to another and so yeah it kind of talked me talk us through that yeah sure absolutely so we can use resistorectomy as a, a sort of case study example of my method which is to say i'm deeply invested in pushing back against kind of mechanisms of solo authority so really pushing back against exemplary cases and single speaking subjects and at that moment in time i was enduring an incredible amount of mm, which, how shall I say, frustrating transphobia at the hands of the medical and various surgeries related to my transition and was feeling very frustrated. And when I'm in that moment, I am someone who thinks I should probably make a project about this. And so I sent a few emails out to friends and said, you know, I'm enduring the following experiences. And I'm wondering if you might know a woman who has had a hysterectomy or a mastectomy and might be willing to think out loud with me from a different subject position. Me locating myself as a trans man seeking these services for transition. I, in my mind, thought perhaps there's someone who's undergoing cancer treatment 
or has another reason to be approaching. And so I sent the email out and I got an email back from a friend who said, my friend Mary Bryson might be an incredible person to collaborate on this, let me connect you. Quick email to Mary Bryson and I got an email back from them. And essentially in the first message, they said, hey Chase, your project sounds interesting. I'm not really sure why you think you need a woman with someone who might be approaching these questions differently, but if that challenge is interesting to you, then let's talk. And I immediately felt incredibly and very productively called out on what were already the limitations of who I thought I needed to be collaborating with or what I thought difference, and I'm using giant bunny ears, could do to a project like this. And so I knew, of course, that Mary was the perfect person. And then we finally collaborated together in a series of experiments. So we brought to the table reference points from our own queer and trans becoming. What were the photos we were looking at? I brought to the table, you know, to me, what was a very foundational text, Lauren Cameron's book, Body Alchemy, which is a series of self-portraits. Mary brought uh, the Dina Metzger Tree of Life photo, which is now regarded as a kind of canonical breast cancer survival photo. And we both loud and reckoned with these images and their impacts on our own understanding. And the split screen video that you're talking about it is, uh, you know, sort of a wild edit experiment on my part to think what would happen if we could radically juxtapose but also suture, all surgery puns intended, and stitch these narratives together. It's not so much for me, what can you learn about me or Mary, but what can we learn about the medical industrial complex? Yeah, I just wanted to say I love the technical aspect that you brought in with editing, because as someone who is a editor, I like to see how you weave in both the technical side of filmmaking into your own narrative. And it kind of just reminded me of Susan Stryker's when she did uh, Christine Jorgensen one. I don't know if you've seen that of her, how her style of um, editing was also in a way supposed to reflect on that experience of, you know, about the suturing and the stitching. So I love that you did that. Thanks. Yeah, and of course, I mean, I think for all of us who are interested in the role of institutions in our lives, documentary and the apparatus of film is yet another institution and mode of meaning making that I think we need to reckon with in, in real time. So I think, you know, we can definitely explore that with Billy Tipton's story. Billy Tipton was so much far erased from history and there's so much that we can dive in. And so we really wanted to know, you know, just how, um, you were able to find out about Billy Tipton, how the project of No Ordinary Man came together. What was it like creating this documentary about this person who for so long was just unknown in the culture and our community. And we finally are able to commemorate this figure who was such a at that time as a jazz musician. So we, we'd love to hear all about No Ordinary Man and Billy Tipton. Sure, I'm happy to spend all of our time talking about No Ordinary Man and, and Billy Tipton, absolutely. So, you know, for those who I assume might be watching this and have not seen the film, No Ordinary Man uses Tipton as a springboard to think about how we tell stories about trans people and trans history. And we do so by inviting a cohort of trans masculine actors to audition for the role of Billy Tipton to think about how Tipton's story can help us to understand transness, history, jazz, race, masculinity, and all of their interactivities. 
you know, but I share an answer to your first question with our writer, Amos Mack, who whenever we're asked, where did you learn about Billy Tipton? Amos will say, I saw it on some list. I saw his name on some listicles on the internet. And, you know, he, Tipton appears in the sort of 10 trans people you might know from history. And if you don't, maybe you should do some research. But the thing about those lists is they essentially say, Tipton was a trans masculine jazz musician who was assigned female at birth and was outed on the talk show circuit after his death. That's it. And so our project approaches Tipton's story, recognizing that that version of Tipton's life is already produced in culture. Tipton's family was on Oprah, right? You can't be more produced in culture, if we want to take those words literally, than arriving on Oprah. What if we change the questions? What if we change the terms of our engagement? What does it mean to look back and try and claim people as a part of a trans history? That question in and of itself changes our approach. It changes our approach to history. It changes our approach to identity, to categorization, to music and to performance. And we really built the project from that place. And I know there's a lot of figures where in the documentary, such as I think Zachary Drucker, talk us about bringing on all these uh, people onto the documentary and how was it working with the, such a big cast and crew of just uh, trans, trans people? Yeah, absolutely. There are trans people everywhere in our project, on camera, behind the camera, operating the camera. Uh, you know, we felt really strongly that to harness and invest in this polyvocal approach, is to allow various people to reflect upon similar questions. So what does it mean to ask Thomas Page McBee, a scholar of masculinity, to think about trans masculinity in the 1950s? What happens if we put those same questions in the hands and experience of Stephen Pennington, a musicologist who has spent his whole career thinking about the relationship between gender and music? We flip it again and put it into the hands of Susan Stryker, right? And so from there, you're building a fabric of understanding where you're trying to tie various threads. And for me, as a documentarian, as a trans person, as a media geek, I'm much more interested in making visible the way that those threads line up and or conflict than on deciding which one is the thread that we should follow throughout. And so to me, the Tipton doc emerges as a kind of kaleidoscope, right? A, a kaleidoscopic way of thinking about history, but also thinking about transness because transness by definition is not stable. We cannot put neat boundaries around a category and say, this is it and this isn't, right? And I think that that's hugely productive. And so the invitation of so many of these luminaries, right? These incredible interlocutors is one way to do that. And similarly, it happens in the casting room. And I'm happy to talk about that if we want to go. In. Yeah, we would love to hear more about, you know, just the the impetus behind having all of these actors try out for this role. And, you know, what that says really about representation in front of the camera, you know, where we want to move you know, moving forward within the queer community, how we're represented on screen. So yeah, we would we would love to hear more about that process, you know, just the different viewpoints that you received from these actors and the origin behind that idea was. Absolutely. So I came onto the project when Ashling, my co-director, the co-writer and editor of the project, and Amos, the co-writer, had been to Stanford to start some of the research. Stanford is the place that holds all of Diane Middlebrook's papers, the author of Suits Me, the biography that is featured and deconstructed in the film. And the one thing that's really complicated about Middlebrook's archives is that 
she actually does have a lot of incredible Tipton material. And it is now publicly housed at Stanford for people to access for those who are able to go to these spaces. So we can think about the really complex ways and the complex places where trans history can be held and found. And through their research and development, started writing these scenes. And really, it was a, 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 a mode of creative and critical fabulation, which is to say, what if we were a fly on the wall in these moments, these pivotal moments in Tipton's life that we don't have access to? We don't have access to his interiority. He didn't leave any notes. He didn't leave a memoir. The scraps of recordings to his family. We have his music, which I would argue is a kind of diary, is a kind of autobiography, but it's not a narrative. And so they use that lack as an opportunity. And so we had five scenes, three of which arrive in the film that you've seen. We put a casting call out for transmasculine actors who wanted to participate in a documentary about Billy Tipton. And I really, you know, underlined bold asterisks around the word documentary and that kind of genre specificity for all the ways in which I would like to fuck with it is critical because they came in understanding that they were being asked to be themselves. And so what that did was produced an environment in the waiting room and in the casting room itself of openness of dialogue and of exchange. And so, so often the guys in the room were like, I've never been in a room with this many transmasculine performers before was a common refrain. And so we shot in New York and in Los Angeles. And what arrives on screen and what you see in the film are organic exchanges between the actors and the filmmaking team as we're thinking out loud together about the impact of, the potential impact of, the imagined impact of some of these moments in Tipton's life. And, and it's through those kinds of exchanges that I really began to recognize our project as a kind of visual politics of rec recognition. So what does it mean that Amos, our writer, was a hugely formative person in his own transmasculine self-becoming? Or what does it mean that I'm watching Jameson Green talk to Billy Tipton Jr. in his living room and I'm thinking to myself, Jameson Green's book, Becoming a Visible Man, was on my mom's nightstand when I was a young transitioning person and my mom was trying to reckon with what it meant for me and what it meant for her and what it meant for our family. So there's all these little moments in the film to me that are made possible by the kind of vulnerability and spontaneity of, of those actors in particular. So I did wanna ask a little bit then from when you're talking about like your process of No Ordinary Man and Framing Agnes and everything, how does that kind of differ from with your short gender eyes? Were the process different? Um, you know, I, was your approach a little bit, um, Silas' approach a little bit held back? Or like, what was it? I, I also want to know if you still keep up with um, the subjects in Genderize. Do you still talk to them? Like, where are they now? Yeah, I, I love I love Genderize and I love those kids. And I don't talk about Genderize in the context of the interviews very often. So this is really fun. I mean, a, a quick story which is that I was on the festival circuit with my short I'm Yours, which I made in 2012 with trans performance artist Nina Arsenault. And I was at a festival in the UK called Sheffield Dog Fest. And as a part of that festival, I got a call to pitch a project to the New York Times OpDocs competition. Essentially, they were gonna pick the top 10 projects. And if you were one of the 10, you would pitch live to the jury of the New York Times OpDocs. They would pick a winner, they'd give you five grand, and you'd get the home of the New York Times opdocs. 
I was like, sign me up. So I saw the application. I looked at the deadline. It was, you know, maybe 48 hours. I'm making up the numbers at this point, but it was not very long from when I encountered it the first time. And I called my friends and I said, can I borrow your kids? And they were like, why? And I was like, just trust me. And so I grabbed a camera that had a mic mounted to it. And I raced over to my friend's house. And they said, you have one hour between when they get home from school and when they have to sit down to dinner could work and do whatever you need to do. So we went out to the backyard and I set up a camera on a tripod in, on their deck. And I asked them questions about gender and sexuality and identity. And I cut together a minute or two submitted it, made it to the finals of the New York Times OpDocs competition, went to the UK, pitched on a stage, was feeling like a million bucks and lost to a animated short film about soccer. And I was like, Ugh! the minute and a half of footage lived on a hard drive. I went on with my life and then through a series of very fortunate events was in a conversation with one of the lead developers and uh, executive producers of CBC's Short Docs, Canadian Broadcast, and said, do you have anything else that I can look at? And I said, I have this wild minute or two of these extraordinary kids. Do you want to see it? She watched it and she was like, I love those kids. And I was like, I would not trust you if there was any other response to those children other than those kids. And so CBC put in some money for me to go back. And so I went, was able to go back to them and shoot again. And so really that's how the project came to be. Not remotely the same method to any of my other work. And they are literally my friends. And you know, now they're two of them have graduated from high school and everyone is thriving and everyone is well and you know, We'll see. I think that there will be another opportunity to to follow up with them in the future. And, you know, what's so extraordinary to me about those kids is they know so much more about themselves and about identity and about sex and gender and what they want and what they need than anyone gives them credit. Yeah, I would be so excited to see a follow up like another like couple years after and see if they have any more insights. So then we move into this question. If you had all the money in the world, if you're just throwing all the money to create any project to do any art that you would like, what is your vision dream project to create? Well, you know, my answer to that question is that I would not, and this is going to reveal me as a formalist, is it would not be a project. It would be a different kind of system and structure. So it would turn that kind of opportunity into an endless waterfall of opportunity where people could make their work and people could collaborate and people could, you know, take breaks and take the time they need to have a new idea, right? I mean, I think time is a resource that we don't talk enough about. We talk about money all the time. And I think that in spaces of art and culture, time is something that we really need to consider. What would it mean to have residencies where you were afforded the opportunity to spend some time thinking about what kind of work you wanted to make rather than making something to a deadline to prove that you were productive in your residency, right? Like if you really think of all of these systems that are designed to help and support artists reproduce some of the structural problems of these other systems. And so, you know, if there was a waterfall moment where I became a gazillionaire, I would literally invest in a kind of like wild think tank to try and um, make all of these opportunities possible and sustainable. That's wonderful to hear, you know, just keep creating content out there, creating art. And I think that moves us to really one of our final questions is, 
you know, what do we have to look forward to from you? I know we have no ordinary man. I know audiences are anticipating it. It's going to be a huge success as a documentary and as a piece of history. Um, and we'd love to hear about what other projects and filmmakers that you're excited about that you would recommend. You know, I have spent time partially for research and partially just out of personal interest, reinvesting in what I consider to be the cohort docs about trans masculinity that came out in the early 2000s. So films like Southern Comfort, The Aggressives, Still Black, even Sam Fader's Boy I Am, which is sort of a mid 2000s cohort doc in my opinion. Uh, and I'm just loving recognizing the incredible trans talent that has been on screen now for so many decades. And it's just another opportunity to push back against the tendency to say we've arrived in a moment where things like this have not happened before or where this is trans people's emergence in culture in a post tipping point moment. And, and I I've been loving um, learning from those prior choices. Um, as you say, Framing Agnes is in the edit and, you know, stars incredible humans like Zachary Drucker, Angelica Ross, Jen Richards, Silas Howard, Max Valerio, and Steven Ira. And we also have the added glorious, brilliant presence of Jules Gill-Peterson, uh, a historian who's coming on to join us in a capacity of as both a narrator and a subject. And so it's all hands on the edit deck, as they say, to, to get that film finished this summer. And I am quarantining for a show. It will be on a platform soon. <laughs> well, we can't wait. We can't wait to see that. We can't wait to see the feature version of Framing Agnes. The, the short is available on Vimeo, is that correct? Yeah, the short's around. Yeah, the short, you can find the short, look it up and um, anticipate that, anticipate No Ordinary Man, learn all about Billy Tipton. Um, Chase, if you want to plug anything with the description of our video, um, but yeah, just plug anything you want and we're just so happy that you sat down with us today. Uh, thanks, uh, you know, levelground.co and you can just Google my name if you need anything else. Thank you.